God's Word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. As the circumstances of the world become more extreme and confusing, we must tune our ears to the voice of our Heavenly Father. His revelation is essential to navigate the road ahead. Welcome to Current Affairs with Sam Soul. It should be no surprise to anyone that the book of Revelation summarizes all of the great themes of the Scriptures, such as the Son coming to maturity, the Son of God, the assembled body of Christ coming to maturity, uh, such as the war between the sons of God and the, the, the seed of the serpent being brought to a final resolution. Um, mankind entering into God's rest, the promise to save a remnant of Israel along with the Gentiles who were brought out from every tribe, tongue, language and nation and so on. All these things are the subject of the book of Revelation and it summarizes them in between the two kingdoms that finally arise upon the earth in the full expression of their respective kings and in full expression of the respective purposes of God and purposes of Satan. It is that. It is a summary of all the great themes of the Scriptures. Unsurprising uh, in that regard. As we begin the look at the book of Revelation, one of these themes suddenly pops up and it is the theme of the saving of a remnant of Israel. Now, you will recall uh, from your studies in Scripture that the gospel was first preached to the Jews beginning on the day of Pentecost. Initially, the word of the Lord was received among the Jews, but the backlash came swiftly and persons such as the Apostle Paul led that backlash. It succeeded in arresting the progression of the gospel amongst the Jews. That, together with the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70, a thing that, that uh, certainly was memorialized in some of the par parables of Jesus and in the prophetic words of Jesus, uh, it, it spoke to that, that happening. This of course was previously uh, prophesied by the likes of Daniel, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, uh, speaking of uh, the seventy-sevens for example in the book of Daniel, uh, a time to bring in eternal righteousness, to bring an end to transgression and so on. So this great theme, 
if, if, we, if we think of the book of Revelation as just a grouping of incoherent symbols and references, and especially if we think of it as largely having been fulfilled, we miss the point altogether. Uh, it is not, in fact, a book of incoherent symbols, as we've been showing. <clears throat> Quite the opposite. It really is drawing out and focusing at the end of the age all the great themes of Scripture and bringing them to their penultimate fulfillment. Why would that be surprising to us? One is called, the first book of the Bible is called Genesis, lays the groundwork for how it all began, the original intent and so on. And the last book of the Scriptures is called the book of Revelation, which reveals how it all is summarized. And there's absolute tautology between what was prophesied and spoken to in the beginning and what is summarized in the end. It's, why, it's one of the internal proofs that allow us to conclude that the Scriptures really are inspired, they're the breath of God. Now, let's get into, I'll show it to you here in one of these great themes, as I said, the salvation of a remnant of Israel. When the Gospel was first preached to the Jews, it was initially received. But persecution swiftly arose, the pushback came, and the earliest persecutors of the church were the same ones who killed Jesus, the Jews. Now, that's a fact. It may not be politically correct today. People don't want to hear about that. And you don't have to say a thing like this with any measure of hubris or anything of that sort. It's simply what happened. You know, is there contention to the contrary? Are the scriptures wrong? You know. And these are things that uh, represent not just human history and political niceties or the lack thereof, it's what was prophesied well before there was a nation called Israel formed to fulfill a promise to bring forth the seed. Well before that, you know, the book of Genesis doesn't begin with, with Abraham and the Jews. The book of Genesis begins with Adam, the father of all mankind. And so the progression of Scripture inevitably leads to the conclusions of those things that were originally spoken. For example, if God says, I'm going to have a man in, the image, in my image and likeness, if the Scriptures conclude without the revealing of a man in the image and likeness of God, what are we to conclude about God? He makes statements He doesn't intend to fulfill. Who are the human actors who participate in the fulfillment of things promised? Well, all humanity. So it doesn't single out the Jews in particular, although because they were chosen for the express and exclusive purpose of bringing forth the Messiah, 
they feature very prominently in biblical uh, references. And because they initially received but subsequently rejected the gospel and became the first persecutors of the church as a continuation of having persecuted to the murder of the Lord Jesus Christ, it was said about them that God would make His appeal, as He always intended to do, to the Gentiles. So if the Jews continue to claim to be the unique people of God, they're living in an illusion. <laughs> I understand this offends all kinds of people, it especially offends Messianic Jews. Uh, I'm not even sorry that it's offensive. If the truth offends, people need to change, need to change their perspective. What we must not do when we preach and speak things that are offensive, we must not do it out of an attitude of heart that is haughty, arrogant, or, um, or unrighteous. Whoever speaks the Word of God brings forth the truth, is obligated to do so in the character of the Lord. But the character of the Lord is never about compromise. The character of the Lord is always consistent with what is true. Like the prophets of old, if you have ears to hear, then hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. But if you choose to hear only what you want to hear and see only what you want to see, then your deception is self-imposed. You have chosen deception and it is not the fault of the bringer of truth that you have chosen poorly. Now, the concept of a remnant of Israel being saved is introduced here in its fulfillment in the book of Revelation, the 14th chapter. So I'll introduce it and then I'll go back and develop the solid foundation in the Scriptures for this teaching. It's fulfilled, it's spoken of as being fulfilled here in Revelation 14 verses 1 and 2. It's shown to be fulfilled, which is part of the role of the book of Revelation, to finish and to conclude the things that were left hanging. And then I'll back up and show you that this interpretation is solidly based on Scripture. More than that, it's irrefutably based on Scripture. Now, he said, John is speaking, he said, I looked and lo, or behold, a lamb stood on Mount Zion and with him a hundred and forty and four thousand, having his father's name written in their foreheads. It goes on to say other things. 
I heard a voice from heaven as the voice of many waters and as the voice of a great thunder. And I heard the voice of harpers harping with their harps. And they sung, as it were, a new song before the throne, before the four beasts and the elders, there would be 24 of those, and no man could learn that song but the hundred and forty and four thousand which were redeemed from the earth." Now it goes on to say something rather interesting. Uh, well, everything that's been said is interesting, continues to say this, "...they are they which were not defiled with women for they are virgins. These are they which follows the Lamb wherever He goes. These were redeemed from among men, being the firstfruits unto God and to the Lamb. And in their mouths was found no guile, for they are without fault before the throne of God." Now, much, this is a loaded passage, so much in a few words. So first, let's go back now and begin to pull it apart. I looked and behold, a lamb stood on Mount Zion. Mount Zion is the reference to the mountain in Jerusalem, the temple mountain, and where the temple had stood before the Romans destroyed it. So now he says, I'm looking and the Lamb stood on this mountain. Where is John at this time when he's looking and seeing the Lamb standing on Mount Zion? Well, from chapter 4 verse 1 of this same book, the book of Revelation, John is placed in the context of being in heaven, seeing things that were to come to pass after the initial things that were told, concerning which he was told, these things would come to pass shortly and then there are things that would come to pass after this. So he's in heaven. His view from where he's located in heaven encompasses both events in heaven and on earth. And this passage speaks of events occurring on the earth as readily as it speaks of, of uh, events occurring in heaven. So for example, the 140 and 4,000 are singing the song before the throne of God. But he's looking at the beginning of this portion of the vision of the book of Revelation, he's looking at the Lamb standing on Mount Zion. Now earlier in chapter four, chapters 4 and 5 in the, of the book of Revelation, chapter 4 announces the Lion of the tribe of Judah 
who is capable of taking the, the scroll that had been sealed on, uh, on, on both sides with seven seals and breaking open the respective seals. <clears throat> that was the lament that no one was found worthy, chapter 5 is the revealing of the one who is worthy. Uh, the introduction is, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah is worthy to take the scroll and open the seals. And he said, when he looked, after having been told the lion was ready to open the seals, he looked and behold a lamb that looked as if it had been slain, uh, came forth. That lamb is described as being, quote, slain from the foundations of the earth, but also slain on the cross of Calvary. The, 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 the forerunner of Christ, John the Baptist, is the one who declared, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, as Jesus was walking by, coming out of the wilderness and going by where John was baptizing in, uh, in, in, in the river Jordan, which in 40 days earlier he had baptized Jesus, Jesus had gone up into the wilderness. So we know who the Lamb is. When we see Him unveiled in heaven in chapter 5 of the book of Revelation, He's unveiled to a song, a multitude of, of those who had been redeemed of the earth sang a new song in heaven. And that song was how the Lamb was worthy, who had prevailed, he had overcome the evil one, and was worthy to receive honor and glory and power forever and ever. And crowns were cast by the four living creatures and by the elders, uh, the 24 elders, cast before the Lamb, signifying that in heaven and on earth, indeed in all creation, He was the Lord, He was the King. That was the scene in heaven about the Lamb. Now the Lamb is seen on Mount Zion. So the Lamb is moves freely between heaven and earth. Why? Because He has all authority in heaven and on earth and He may be revealed with the company on the earth or He may be revealed sitting upon the throne in heaven because all is His. It has been given to Him by the one whose it was to give. So the Lamb is not in heaven in this portion of the vision, the Lamb is on Mount Zion. And with Him, a hundred and forty and four thousand, having His Father's name written in their foreheads. Now we saw the Lamb and a hundred and forty-four thousand earlier in chapter 7 of the book of Revelation. That's when the 144,000 were introduced in heaven. 
Now they're seen with the Lamb on Mount Zion. When they're shown in heaven, they're designated as 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. After seeing this company, John also sees a similar company, but this one was beyond the capability of numbering, of, of all people taken out of all of the people, tribes, languages, and nations. So we look at the composition of the redeemed and there are two types. There is 12 times 12 times a thousand of Israel and there is a numberless multitude. And they're the same company but there's a reason for highlighting the 12 times 12 times a thousand, the number, and a reason to highlight those who are of Israel. The 12 times 12 times a thousand applies as readily to Israel as it does to this vast multitude, for they are the same people. 12 times 12 is a representation of government, so they are an orderly, they're a governmental people, they are a kingdom, might I say a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. The original promise given to Israel brought down to Mount, uh, brought down and declared to Moses on Mount Sinai by God Himself. This was the original intent of God to make of Israel this perfect company. It is clear that unlike the Jehovah's Witnesses' view of this, that is 144,000 in literal numbers, it is abundantly clear that it is a representational multitude. It's why the number 12 is used. It's why God, well before there was the formal Israel with whom God entered into a covenant on Mount Sinai, it's why God had Jacob to produce 12 sons. It's symbolic. It's why Jesus Himself had 12 disciples and so much of what He said to the 12 disciples had everything to do with a perfectly formed kingdom on the earth, a governmental entity ruled over by the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who has all authority in heaven and on earth. So it's showing the subset of Israel. I went back and looked, and I, I may have overlooked it, but I couldn't find a reference to a remnant of the Gentiles. The Gentiles are portrayed as a numberless multitude, but still formed according to 
a perfect company, 12 times 12 times, times 1,000. A subset of the kingdom of God is a remnant of Israel. I cannot find a reference, uh, which doesn't mean that there isn't one, it just means I can't find it, a reference to the Gentiles as a remnant. The only ones I've been able to find is a reference to Israel being defined as a remnant, those saved out of Israel being defined as a remnant. Now, Romans, uh, Romans defines the reason why uh, they are viewed as a remnant. The word remnant, which is uh, hupo lemma, hupo lemma. It means uh, a remnant, it's uh, a number drawn down or a number behind. Um, to be drawn down is to be reduced to a remnant. And the interesting thing is whatever God promised to a whole might be fulfilled in a remnant. But let's go back briefly to Romans the ninth chapter and let's look at Paul's teachings on the remnant. Uh, Paul is speaking in Romans uh, quite extensively about the condition of Israel and he says, They are not all Israel who are Israel, nor are they all the children because they're the seed of Abraham. He's saying there's a false Israel and there's a true Israel. And the mere fact that you are a descendant of Abraham doesn't make you the beneficial heir of the promise. God gave a promise to Abraham that in his seed, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. The nation of Israel was established according to that promise. So you have a natural Israel to produce Mary's son, the Lord Jesus. They are bound by a covenant of circumcision, which covenant was the cutting off of the foreskin of the males to signify that flesh does not touch the holy seed. That was the covenant in their flesh. Now circumcision nor uncircumcision does not by itself qualify you as a beneficial heir of the promise, for the promise is in two parts. I'll make of you a great nation, God said to Abraham, and that was fulfilled with the Jews. And in thy seed, namely Christ, because this is how what Galatians develops in chapter 3, in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, including Israel. For there is no blessing that does not include Christ. Because the purpose was not to create 
sons to Abraham, the purpose was to bring forth out of Abraham a seed that would produce sons to God, not Abraham. That was the blessing, that was the promise. When Israel rejected Christ, they rejected the promise. Now Paul gets into this when he asks the question, in their initial rejection of Christ, has God cast away Israel? This is Romans Romans 9 uh, and Romans 10. And when God cast away Israel, or when, when when Israel rejected the access that was given to them first into Christ, they initially came and then they rejected. Christ went to the God went to the Gentiles, and Paul was given the grace to take the gospel to the Gentiles. And for two thousand years, the Jews have continued to reject Christ. Now these are just facts. They're just facts. For two thousand years, Israel as a people have not accepted Christ as the Messiah. They're still looking for the Messiah. Certain foolish evangelical Christians have actually come up with a novel theology, which is the height of cynicism. They say, God made a separate covenant with Israel through Abraham. People like John Hagee take that position. If you actually believed in Christ and understood that Christ is the propitiation for our sins, if you actually believed that and would say this kind of rubbish, you would be extremely cynical. I can only conclude that such preachers don't actually believe that Christ is the covering by whom we are presented to the Father, but rather the fig leaf of the law is a sufficient covering and a substitute for Christ. What a horrible, despicable position. And for what? Just so you could get a special invitation to Israel? This is crazy stuff. It's all part of why a whole church is falling away. But when we continue, I want to show you the promise of a remnant and the fulfillment in prophetic reference here in Hebrews 14 of that remnant being actually brought in. I'm Sam Solon, we'll continue this discussion when we continue. Bye-bye.